a spring rain. A spring rain that comes and waters the earth. And Lord, our lives can be like that. Um, We can be parched and we can be frustrated with the, the dirt of pollen, the stain of our sin, the impasse, the stalemate, the places where we feel stuck. As the psalmist once prayed, the, the, the muck in the mire, and you lift up. Would you put us on a high place on a rock? You refresh us like the spring rain. Lord, I pray that for your people this morning. I pray now for everyone here that this would not be on a rainy Sunday, would not be a wasted trip. Lord, that you would pour out what you have now for your people. Lord, I am the pastor. My sins are many, and I thank you, as I do often, that you use a broken vessel to bring your word, and your word is living and active and powerful. And I pray for its intended effect in us today. For the prodigal who has strayed and who stumbled here today, for the crusty Christian who seems to be here all the time, who's seen it, heard it, but is far from it. Lord, would you melt us and mold us to the one who needs comforting, I pray that for comfort. For the one who needs to be challenged against complacency, I pray for the challenge. This we pray in Jesus for your sake. Amen. Well, Friday, some of you know, a pedestrian bridge that was recently constructed to connect Florida International University with its adjoining community of Sweetwater there in Miami, it collapsed. And under the weight of this collapse, uh, several folks lost their lives. And of course, when a tragedy occurs like this in a modern nation like ours, there is a pretty intensive, a full throttle investigation. And early, uh, just a day into it, the very next day, which was yesterday, they discovered that uh, there were cracks in this structure. And that um, an engineer had uh, noticed the cracks and had notified authorities at both Florida International University. They were late getting to the voicemail. And the Florida Department of Transportation, who I think went to the scene and didn't see it as structurally unsound. And this illustrates through a terrible tragedy, through really unforeseen circumstances, it illustrates to us to a big idea that I want to share with you today, and I want this to stay with you. Often before a collapse, there are cracks. And in this, like this um, scenario, this situation, whether it's the structure of a bridge or the structure of your life, the character, the home, the heart that you're building, there's a, it's teeming with possibilities. You could uh, not notice. You don't notice the cracks. Or you could notice and not notify. Or you could notice and notify. And then there's a scenario of you notice and you notify and nothing is done. And this morning as we get close to the end of Galatians and we're talking about relating as followers of the gospel, I want to say to you this morning, now it's important for us to get a handle on this, to understand this, what is our delight and duty and our responsibility as Christians of being in the family of God. I believe that we are, we're called, we are summoned To notice. Notice is about awareness. It's seeing. Notifying is about boldness. It's saying. 
And I think for us, if we're going to live rightly in relationships with others, we need to be about both notifying, noticing and notifying where we, we're, we have an awareness, our eyes are open and we see what we need to see and we're discerning. For some of you, it's a gift, thank God. But for all of us, we need to grow in this awareness. Are we, do we see what we need to see? Are we noticing cracks? And then are we notifying? It's important. We're going to come to a portion of Scripture today in just a moment, the end of Galatians 5 and the beginning of Galatians 6, where it is really, um, I think, a very compelling verse. It's just a great invitation, but at the same time, it's a little bit confusing, and if done with the wrong heart, it, it ends up hurting a lot of people. And so I want to undergird it with, with the background of Galatians, this letter that Paul wrote to early followers of Jesus who were being tempted to fall, to fall away, to fall back into legalism, or they were um, entrapped in hypocrisy. They weren't walking in freedom. And we've been saying all series that a life um, held back, a life turned inward is a life held back. And Jesus desires for us to love one another and to walk in freedom and to serve one another. It's like, you know, you've been to the gym lately and you see the guy or the gal that's over there and they're doing squats. Now I'm at an age, I'm at a point in life where I'm not doing squats and it hurts to look at people that do squats. But they've got that weight, you know, no matter the weight and they're doing the, I probably shouldn't even do it with an invisible bar, but you know, they're doing the bend down, right? And they're back up again and they're working that lower body. They've gotten down and the goal there is to get low in order to what? To strengthen those muscles. So you get low and those muscles, they're strengthened. They're made more powerful by going low and serving one another is like that. It's like squats at the gym. It's when you say, Hey, I'm going to choose as a follower of Jesus to go low. I'm going to get low and to order to strengthen these serving muscles so that I can properly follow people. Undergirding it all is, is a life passage for me. If you're an approval addict, I invite you to come with me on the journey. I'm in recovery, and God is really growing me in this area. But in Galatians 1.10, Paul said this. We looked at this in week one. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? What a question. Or am I trying to please man? He, get, he gets really clear if there's any doubt. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's pretty clear. You may not agree with it. You may be bothered by it in some way, but give him credit. That's really clear. That's a pretty distinct dichotomy there. The question for you and I is not, will I seek approval? Look at me for a second. It's not, will I seek approval? Like it is human to need approval. You and I, man, we are machines built for approval. The question isn't, will I seek approval? The question is, where will I seek approval? approval. When you were a little baby, remember that? You don't. But when you were a little baby, you looked up at that face, most likely, most often your mama's face, and that face was smiling at you. And you smiled at them. They, they thought, your mom thought that you loved her. You just had gas, right? But then you began to recognize that mom, that father, that, that caregiver, that crazy grandma, grandpa, aunt, and uncle, right? And you noticed that you would do certain things, make little noises, and they would coo back to you, and they would follow you, and with their eyes and their smile. And what were they doing? They were approving of you. They were giving you that stamp of approval, and you got that from the moment you came out of your womb. Everybody, that's in you, and you, like a magnet, like a moth to a flame, you're drawn to approval. And here's the thing. Your need for approval, it's an infinite need. But God, and only God, has an infinite supply. Not am I, not, not will I seek approval or am I seeking approval. It's where will I seek approval from? Where do I go? 
a book, it's a popular book, no pun intended, entitled Popular. I read this a couple of months ago. The subtitle I love, I want to keep it up and draw your attention to it. Popular, the power of likability in a status-obsessed world. Now, the writer here talks about when pretty much everybody gets to high school, the chemicals in their brain change, and their number one priority is popularity. Can I be popular? Now, you know when you got a high school yearbook, maybe I'm dating myself, but you, they still do high school yearbooks, and you write, you know, hey, love you, don't go changing. We would write, don't go changing, which is a terrible thing to write in a high school yearbook. Like, when you're in high school, I mean, some of you are, but like, please change. Like, please change, please grow up. Like, the world is counting on you to change. Don't go changing. I like you just the way you are. It's a Billy Joe song. All, Billy Joe song. Everybody should have got slapped for plagiarism, right? Don't go changing, don't go changing. But the goal is to change. But the chemicals in your brain, particularly in high school, become so poignant to seeking approval, becoming popular. And the writer of this book asserts that we really don't change much in this area. And here's the two, he, he, he differentiates between two types of popularity. One he calls their status popularity. And in status popularity, that is where you are seeking to impress other people. Status, those who have a status, they do impress. It's the really super popular person. It could be um, the head cheerleader, the captain of the football team. But if it's just about status and having other people value how beautiful and rich and smart and good you are, then popular, the writer says, equals, ready for this, popular equals miserable. If it's status, popularity. But if it's likability, if it's likable popularity, that's different. Because you see, status popularity seeks to impress others, and it's, but it's really about themselves. Every relationship is transactional. There's a plus minus in, in that person's mind mentally. How can I use this person, what, to elevate my own status? Even when it looks like I'm elevating their status, it's really about my own. But likability is a form of popularity where people just like you and you're about them. A likable, popular person is often about you. And there's a difference there. It's a big difference. When we live our lives seeking status, that's a big problem. Popular can equal miserable. The question, it's not, are you seeking approval? The question is where? Are you seeking approval? And I've learned from this book, how are you seeking approval? Where are you going? Where's that cistern? Where's that fount that you want to drink from? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, Paul said this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify, here we go, to the gospel of the grace of God. Galatians 1.10, do I now seek the favor of men or Christ? Who am I seeking to please? He says here, I do not count my life as dear to me. Listen, if you're living your life and what is most dear to you is what others say about you, then you are not free. You're trapped and you're enslaved. I want to say it again. Here we see the writer of Galatians is mentioned here talking in the book of Acts, early church. Closest, nearest followers of Jesus. My life, I do not count dear to me. 
That's a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus taught. If you lose your life, you will save it. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. It's so paradoxical, but there's the truth. If you make it about you and your convenience and your comfort and your security and your happiness, you, you, you all the time, you're going to find that you are not free. What you think is bringing you freedom is holding you back. Paul said, my life is not dear to me. And you're an approval addict if you say, what is most dear to me is what others say about me. Let's look at Galatians. In recap, Galatians 5, 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, there are, in, in the book of Galatians, there are certain tug-of-wars. When I was in college, sophomore year, spring break, Daytona Beach, El Carib Hotel, which in Spanish means stuffed in like sardines. We were there, and we were, we were enticed into a large tug-of-war match, and the winner would get $1,000. Man, I jumped in. I was so proud. I was so excited. It was one team against the other, and we were ready to roll. We were ready. We were ready to pull. The MTV cameras were there. The corporate sponsorship tents were there, and we pulled, and guess what? We won. We won $1,000. I went to the tent to claim my prize, and evidently, apparently, our team had 58 people on it. We had like 20 people that jumped in mid-pull. And so my purse that day was $17 and some change, which goes a long way at the end of spring break when you're a sophomore, right? There's a tug-of-war. Look, we all understand tug-of-war, don't we? And in Galatians, there's this tug-of-war, a tug-of-war between the freedom that Christ offers and the human desire for control. There's a a tug of war between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And these last week, this last week or two, we've been careful to point your attention to the word uses there, works of the flesh or deeds of the flesh versus what the fruit of the spirit. Nobody in the room has ever walked up to an apple tree and said, man, you are working hard, apple tree. Man, you are sweating to produce those apples. You've never done that. You never would because the apple doesn't have to strain or strive. The apple just, the tree just needs to stay. It needs to abide because the forces beyond it produce the fruit. And that's the way it is for you and I. It's not the deeds of flesh. It's not human effort. Don't you know that always falls short? But it's it's what he produces. Read John 15. Jesus talks about this very thing. He's the vine and we are the branches. And what do we do? We don't stress. We don't strain. We don't strive. We just stay. We abide in him. We let his word abide in us. And he produces fruit. There's a tug of war where you live for the deeds of the flesh or for the fruit of the Spirit? Will you live for the approval of man or the approval of Christ? Your need for approval is unlimited, but God has a limited, I'm sorry, an unlimited supply. He's the only one. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this truth here. I'll put it differently. Put it up on the screen, if you will, that what you believe changes how you live. Now, Religious people, are you one? Religious people get a bad rap for this because we sing the creeds, we quote the verses, we tell people what we what? We tell them what we believe, but does it change how we live? I have a friend that I connected with a a few Fridays ago, and we met for breakfast. He called the spot uh, Whole Foods. And when I got there, I went toward the donuts and pastries because they do have some junk food in Whole Foods. You need to know that. But he went, toward, he went toward the oatmeal and the strawberries, and he drank water. You see, his mother-in-law recently lost her life to cancer. Very tough season for him and his wife. And he said, hey, Robert, man, we are learning about this disease. Uh, as we hurt, we're educating ourselves on how unhealthy we can be. And listen, 
what you believe changes how you live. I've got other friends. They believe, uh, this could be some of you, they believe in essential oils. You guys know about essential oils? These are particles from plant products, from trees, from tree bark, from the resin, from the roots, from the leaves. And these essential oils, uh, they claim, have healing properties. It can alleviate uh, pain, and it can reduce stress, and it can boost your immune system and improve your memory and your brain function. They have essential oils all over their house, in their medicine cabinet. Don't ask me how I know. They have it in their medicine cabinet at their bedside. They have it in the dining room. Like They believe in the power of essential oils, and they want to influence me in this. What you believe changes how you live. The fabulous Susan loves scented candles. If you know Susan, want to do something nice for her, uh, I, I prefer money, but she would love a scented candle. That would be a nice gift for her. Through the years of marriage, we've been out, and she'll want to dip into a store because we uh, need a candle, right? We need another scented candle. Our home should always be massively fortified with scented candles. What you believe changes how you live, whether it's a healthy diet, essential oils, or scented candles. What you believe changes how you live. How much more important is what we believe about God? What we believe about God, these big ideas that he calls us into freedom. That as we say often, the gospel means you have nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to hide. Like, how can that center your life? Like, that's the kind of person you want to be around, right? If, if a person is walking in that kind of freedom, what you believe changes how you live. And a second big idea, how you live is most seen in your relationships. How you live is most seen in your relationships. This again is a little bit of a recap, but last week, Galatians 5, 26, it says this, don't be conceited, let us not become that. He's kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt, like you're sort of humble now, but don't become conceited, which probably means they're conceited. But anyway, don't provoke one another and envy one another. On YouTube, I found this out last night, YouTube, there are 13,000 um, instructional videos Tutorials, here we go, that's the word. 13,000 tutorials of how to take the perfect selfie. 13,000. Look, I know what y'all do, you fact check me, okay? So go ahead, that's gonna take all, that's gonna take all day and then tomorrow, Tuesday, maybe even to Thursday. But 13,000 tutorials on how to take the perfect selfie. Any guesses? Any guesses on how many tutorials there are on how to die to yourself? Or how to deny yourself? Zero, zip, nada, none, nilch. None that I could find. It's tempting for us to live in this selfie world of self-promotion and not self-denial. And when we do, we're conceited. It's just strange to me that a people who admit that they need a Savior, like Raise your hand if you admit that you need a Savior. Like You can't save yourself. Like there's a penalty of sin. There's a power in sin. And you're here today. Man, we're not taking communion. We're not baptizing today. But like you, your hand is up. Like, I need a Savior. And isn't it strange that people who admit that they need a Savior would become conceited? It's like you're at the swimming pool and somebody is drowning. And a lifeguard jumps into the pool and pulls them out and saves them. And then moments later, they brag about their aquatic expertise. Like, dude, um, you were drowning. Like, the lifeguard saved you. Shut up. Don't be conceited. 
like there really is no room. It's, Paul said, if you man, walk in the Spirit, continue in the Spirit. Don't be conceited. And these two ideas, we talked about it last week. This is recap, and I'm throwing a couple of new things on you. Provoking is when you feel superior to other people. And provoking asks the question underneath, of course, how could they? How could they? How could they engage in a relationship with that person? How could they do that? How could they go where they go? How could they? Look at their kid. Look at that. Look how their kids act in the restaurant. Just that, their little boy just threw the ketchup bottle. How could they do that? How could they? And we provoke when we feel superior. But the, on the other side of that coin, the flip side is when we envy. When we envy, we think, why can't I? Like I'm single and they're married or I'm married on the way to divorce and they're married and they're keeping themselves married or their kids are on a roll on the way to scholarship and my kids just burned down the neighborhood, neighbor's doghouse, you know. Like, why can't I? Why can't I be like them? Why can't my kid, why can't my spouse, why can't I have what they have? How could they? And a conceited person is not a centered person. They're not free in the gospel. And this person of conceit will either provoke or envy. And Paul is saying, hey, there's a better way. What you believe changes how you live. And how you live is most seen in how you relate to other people. So, how are you relating to other people. There's a question or a passage that I want us to look at, and that's Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Often, listen, often before a collapse, there are cracks. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, there's conceit again. When he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul gets fired from Hallmark, okay? That, you know, you write a card, you got to make everybody feel awesome about themselves. And Paul is saying, hey, you're nothing. Ouch. But let each one test his own work. Verse 5. We got it? And then... His reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So here we see a couple of um, experiences, if you will. Let's put that up, a little outline. There's two experiences, two kinds of experiences you're going to have in your relationships. What you believe changes how you live. How you live is seen most in, in your relationships with other people. Don't be conceited. Don't provoke. Don't envy. He would say earlier in Galatians 5, remember this, don't bite and devour. And you're criticizing and you're complaining. Don't bite and devour each other. Lift each other up. Two kinds of experiences you're going to have in relationships. The first, someone caught in a sin, Galatians 6. Also Galatians 6, someone buried under the weight. Now this idea Someone caught in a sin. What, is, what does that mean? At first blush, doesn't it appear to be a pretty judgmental verse? Doesn't it, be a, doesn't it appear to be a verse that no one really wants to enter into because someone's been caught in a sin? Have you ever been caught in a sin? Don't raise your hand. Today you could be here and that is your fear of being caught in a sin. And God gives us the gifts of confession and repentance. It brings healing. Can I tell you from personal experience, that's what brings healing in my life. Confession and repentance. This phrase is a little creepy. He who is caught in a sin. It, it sort of sounds like a, I got you. Oop, caught you. 
because we watch the news, right? We watch those shows local and national, global, where it's like caught on tape. Like they were going to skate. They were going to get away. You know, he said, she said, but then boom, caught on tape. And guess what? They have the tape at 11 o'clock. Tune in. Caught on tape. Gotcha. And this is not a gotcha verse at all. In fact, the, the Greek word, karaditse, is, it means to restore. And so the idea is that we as followers of Jesus wouldn't be a church as an institution. We would be a church as a hospital. We would bring healing to people. This is the place that people would come to to find help in time of need. Like, that's the church. That's the church as salt. That's the church as light. That's the church with followers of Jesus that we would see someone and we would see the cracks before because often there's a collapse. We would see the cracks. We would have an awareness of it. And we would then restore. Carter did say we would mend the broken bone. Now, when a broken bone is mended, thank God for our anesthesiologist, but when a broken bone is mended, there's some pain, right? There's some trial there. There's some waiting. There's some hope for the healing. It's not instant, pretty much never. And that's what life is like when there are cracks in the structure of your life and your integrity. There's not any verses in the New Testament to say, cover stuff up. Conceal, don't share. And just the opposite. Because often, before a collapse, there are cracks. And for you and I to have an awareness of how each other are doing, and that we would care enough to confront, that we would bring healing. This idea caught is not, again, move, move your mind away from, mm, gotcha. It's not that, okay? Picture a fish on a well-set hook. A fish on a well-set hook is caught securely on that hook, and they can wiggle all they want to. They're not getting away. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that you are going to have experience your relationship. And here's what's, here's what's hard at times, talking to some of our young people. I mentor a few people, and I, 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 this comes up a lot. Like you've looked up to somebody. They led you to faith in Jesus, and they've been caught. In a sin, they love you, you love them, you admire them, but they've been caught and they're like a fish on a hook. They can't get out. They're overstressed, they're overworked, they're hiding a secret sin. They're caught in something that they cannot get out of. Like a fish on a hook, they want to get away and all the wiggling is not going to help. They need to be restored. And God gives the church, he gives his body of believers and followers of him this gift of restoration Carter did say that we would restore, we would put the broken bone back on, we would reset it. And even though it might hurt a little bit, it will help. And here, here's what I love. Paul does not give, as Christian authors do today, he doesn't give five easy steps to Carter did say. He doesn't give four secret ways. But he does talk about the most important thing, which is what? It's the heart of the helper. It's the heart of the helper. And as I've studied it, I'll give you three criterion, three things that need to be present in the heart of the helper. That person needs to be godly, gentle, and careful. They need to be godly and gentle and careful. What does Galatians 6 say? Do you remember? You who are spiritual. And we wrongly interpret that. We think, well, I'm not perfect. And if I go talk to Bob about blank, then he's going to bring up blank about me. And even if it was in my past or whatever, because you're only going to go to someone that you know and really love and care for, right? There's proximity and there's a relationship here. And it doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. 
When he says you who are spiritual, he means the translation is you who have the Holy Spirit. You who have the Spirit and you are bearing fruit of the Spirit. You're a person of love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. You're a person who's progressively growing that. You're a person who abides with Jesus, who loves him, who has the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You go to that person who is caught in sin. You be a godly person. You be a gentle person. Staying with the fish. Some of us, we fish, we catch, and we eat or mount. But sometimes you fish, you catch, and you release. And good outdoorsmen that I've been on the shore with or in a boat with, when they catch and release, they don't pull, jerk, or yank. They, there's a, they hold the fish in a right way, and they release the hook in a gentle way, and then they undergird the fish as it floats out. The, the goal there is to release the fish in good condition into its natural habitat. Are you with me here? So the goal when you go, if you're godly, that's the first thing. Be a spiritual person, really care, and then be gentle. It may involve some pain. Look, I, I haven't grown in my life. I haven't been a leader, a growing leader, unless I've been hurt. D.L. Moody, the person, the man that God uses greatly, he hurts deeply. And it's going to hurt, but there is a gentleness to the one who is spiritual. You do it, and the goal is to release that person to help them, and then you're careful. Now, why be careful? I, you know what? I, spring break Sunday, I'm going to ask the whole church, talk to me. Why do you need to be careful? Either quote from the passage or use common sense. Why would you need to be careful if you're going to someone to restore them? They're caught in a sin, and you're going to them. Why would you need to be careful? Lest you be tempted, okay? My man went King James here on the third row. Lest you be tempted, okay? All right, that's it. He's got it. Lest you be tempted. You have to be careful because 1 Corinthians 10, he who stands, be careful lest he fall. You, you have to be careful. And that spirit, right, that's the fruit of the spirit. Look, the best times I've been confronted, I've had a brother or a sister come to me and talk to me. Man, and it hurts, right? It hurts because they're digging something up. I'm caught in something. I'm not the person that God meant me to be. There's something holding me back. One time it was overstressed, overworked, and I had a brother who talked to me about my bucket of energy. And it hurt me when, he, when I was caught in this sin. And you know who was being hurt by that? Like her and the family. And someone, they did it gently. They were a godly person. And they did it gently, and they, I felt that they were careful. Because look, everybody's tempted to go down that path. And we have to be careful. Godly, that's the heart of the helper. God, raise up shepherds, raise up leaders who bear the fruit of the Spirit, who will realize that often before a collapse, there are cracks, and we will go to someone who has cracks, go to someone who is caught, and the goal is to gently restore them. And then the second part of this experience that you're going to have, if we can go back to that, is you'll, you'll experience someone caught in sin and someone buried under a weight. So when someone is caught in a sin, the idea is that you would restore when someone is buried under a weight, what's the command? What's the invitation there in Galatians 6? It's to what? Say it. I'm going to go all day. It's to bear that weight. It's to share that load. It's important. Now, this is not necessarily a sin issue. This is often something that has happened to somebody. And here's what I want to say to you. I think it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. An American church's typically bad small group consists of one person who will tell you all about their stuff, 
and not stop talking. And then a few people who will never lower the drawbridge and let you in. And they're bearing a weight that they cannot really bear. And the idea is that we would share the load. If it's 100 pound, I'm not going to do other squat, but if it's a 100 pound bar, two people hold it together and it's 50 pounds, right? It's not 100 for one, 100 for, it's 50 pounds. And that's a, that's a better weight. You can, you can hold on to that. And here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that we should carry their load. All right? We bear the weight. We bear the burden, the big thing, but the load they carry, okay? And that's important. You ever borne a weight for someone financially and you've, you've loaned them money and then a week or a month later they come back to you not to thank you or repay you, but to what? Ask you, for more money. Now, have you helped them? Trick question, right? Because it's situational, it's debatable. But there's an indication likely that you haven't helped them because you and I are called to carry our own load. But we bear the weight, the burden when it's too heavy for someone. Now, how do we do this? We've got to be godly. We need to be gentle and we need to be careful. And this is so different, guys. It's so different than judging. You know the famous words of Jesus. Really good, Matthew 7. Pretty popular. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? By the way, you, some of you use that verse to not confront. Like you, somebody's caught in a sin and you, you, you act like you don't notice but, or you notice and you're not going to notify, Right? Because you're scared and you use this verse as justification. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the, all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Jesus doesn't mince his words. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Restoring and bearing burdens is not the same and it's very different than judging and condemning and blaming. I was reading recently, and I'll, I'll begin to close. I was reading recently a book by a very credible thinker out on the West Coast who came to faith in Jesus later in his adulthood, and he did it in a very intellectual way. He bathed his mind in history and literature and teaching on this idea of judgment, condemnation, and blame. And in this, he was drawn to the stories of the Bible and how God was always on the side of the victim. You look at Jesus. He calls out people for their hypocrisy, just like Paul does in Galatians 1 and following. Jesus never condemned and always offered welcome to the ethnic rejects, to the religious heretics, to the sexually scandalous, to the untouchable, the unlovable, misfits, always, every time. What percentage of time? Let me, let me help you, 100%. Every single time. And the only time that Jesus condemned was toward those who condemned other people in the name of God. Like, that's, that's really important to understand this. And this writer that I was reading, he talked about societies, peoples, and cultures 
have what we've come to be called scapegoats, where we blame another person or a whole people group for all the problems and ills. Hitler had the Jews. Stalin had the dissidents. Rwanda had the Tutsis. We blame peoples. And the word scapegoat flows from Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 8. It's um, Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, 8, it talks about this practice in Israel where the priest, the chief priest, would take this goat and he would hold the goat, put his hands on it, and confess the sins of himself and of his people and release the goat into the wilderness. It was called a scapegoat. And in Ancient times, other nations, uh, not Israel, were offering to their polytheistic gods in order to please and placate them. They were offering human sacrifices, scapegoats. I don't want to take responsibility for my life. I want to blame other people. Oh, you're talking about my, you're, you're the problem. I'm blaming you. It's on you. And this intellectual, in reading the Bible, he sees how God takes the side of the scapegoat. How in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel offered the sacrifice, Cain was unwilling. He was unwilling to own it. He was unwilling to take responsibility. He was unwilling to make the sacrifice and make things better. And he, he scapegoated his brother and killed him. And God says, the blood of Abel cries out to you from the ground. God has a heart for the one who's been scapegoated for the victim. The story of Joseph. Brothers got rid of him, sold him into slavery. Genesis 50, 20, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. God is, has a heart for the one who has been scapegoated. Jesus, holy, innocent, blameless, sinful, sinless, was the scapegoat. The powers that be, the political powers, the religious powers, the money changers in the temple, Pontius Pilate washed his hands in public and he said, don't blame me. The blood of this man is not on me. 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God is the one who is just. We have a victim mentality. We have this blame game where we shift it to other people and we scapegoat. But if you follow Jesus, you have a Savior who's the last, great, final scapegoat. Holy, innocent, blameless, sinless. And he took it for you. And he calls us to follow him. And in following him, we move away from judgment and blame and condemnation. But as we grow closer to each other and we see people that we love get caught in sin and buried under the weight, we restore and we bear a burden because we love and we serve. We follow him. Put it this way. You can go to a dentist and sit in the chair. And in that chair, the dentist may say to you, well, you know, you, um, your gums are receding. Looks like you have a cavity or two. You had not been flossing, have you? The dentist is not being judgmental. The dentist is doing his job. You could go to a dentist and sit in a chair. The dentist could say, your teeth are yellow and nasty and ugly and crooked. You don't have good hygiene, oral hygiene. You have low gene. Like everything in your mouth is bad, right? That is being judgmental. And you see, when you follow Jesus, 
We are to be discerning. We're to ultimately trust him as the great judge. And then we're called, as we move away from blame, condemnation, and a judgmental spirit, we're called to be wise and discerning and loving, to seek to restore and to help others buried under a weight. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And I pray that you would help us, that you would form a people who, Lord, get on the winning side of the tug of war. Who trust you to be the one who pulls, who trust you to be our strength. And that we would walk in freedom. And we would make a choice with our unrelenting need for approval to seek it from you. Lord, we can move more and more away from caring so much about what other people think. That even our very lives would not be dear to us. They would be offered to you. Lord, for those caught today like a fish on a well-set hook, they're wiggling but cannot get away. I pray for them. And Lord, for those who are buried under a weight, I pray for them to share that. Just as a patient at a hospital has to be willing to be helped, so we too whether we're caught in a sin or buried under a weight, we need to be willing to be helped. Lord, let us be you. Let us be Jesus in relationships with each other. This we pray in Jesus. The altar is open. If we can pray for you in any way, would you come today?